Well, if you're new with us, we're doing something a little bit different this morning. We're continuing a three-part series, topical series, on friendship. So, uh, obviously, it was started last week. Normally, we work, we've been working our way through the book of John. Normally, we just work our way through books expositionally, kind of section by section, text by text. But we decided to slow down, because John does talk a lot about friendship, and, uh, and focus in on this. It comes from a series we did at a men's treat a few years ago. And I didn't, I think Jay, I don't know if he mentioned last week, there's a couple books. There's a book called True Friendship by Vaughn Roberts, and a book called No Greater Love by Rebecca McLaughlin. There are wonderful books on friendship that we've, uh, you know, are leaning on for this series. And there's another book that recently uh, made for friendship by Drew Hunter, which is an excellent book. So if you want to ask me about those, I'll have those up here afterwards. Being topical, we don't have one main text this morning, although uh, the base text is uh, Proverbs uh, 18.24 that we'll be looking at. Now, Jay started last week with kind of a biblical theology of friendship. And he showed us how friendship is crucial uh, to who we are as Christians. It's basically in our spiritual DNA. Our Trinitarian God, right, is a relational God and community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're made in his image as these relational beings for kind of divine friendship. And Adam and Eve, we kind of saw that ideal in the garden in their intimate relationship. And God was there and even walked with them side by side, this friendship picture. But that was lost at the fall as they chose not to trust God, and, which is at the core of friendship. That, that relationship was broken and then these relationships, friendships, were broken. But God, in his grace, kept pursuing his creation, his people, for friendship. We see that throughout the Old Testament. We see him even, in Exodus 33, it says that God was speaking to Moses as a friend. In Isaiah 4, 8, God references Abraham, my friend. He's pursuing his people as friends, and eventually, God shows up in Jesus as the friend of sinners. That's all of us. And he sacrifices his life lays down his life for his friends to bring us back into relationship with God. He restores this so that true friendship can happen this way. In Christ, we're brought in to a community, a gathering of friends. In fact, the early church called themselves friends. My dad's first church was a Quaker church, Braylinda Friends, the Friends denomination. And you know what this means for us as Christians? It means that friendship is not optional. There's no such thing as a friendless or an unfriendly Christian. There shouldn't be. Real humanity, real spirituality, real Christianity is about real friendship. First with God and then with his people. Which brings us to kind of today's sermon, which has one basic point. In one sense, today's sermon is a long application of Jay's sermon last week, which was that friendships are crucial, friendships in Christ. And today what I want to say is that friendships, our friendships must be close. It's a simple idea. They're supposed to be real and close. This proverb 
Proverb 18.24 says this, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, uh, there's some implications to that. This Proverbs tells us that it's possible to have many friends, many companions, many people who know us by name, many people that we hang out with, these friends, many people that are like, hey man, what's up? Those kind of friends. And come to complete ruin. Meaning they, they aren't real friends. They won't be there for you in a crunch. They won't be there for you when you need them in that crisis. They, they won't call you out when you're heading the wrong way in your life because they probably won't even know. They're not that close. They won't keep you from ruining your life. In fact, they may contribute to it because their presence in numbers gives you a false sense of security. I've all these friends. But, he says, there is a friend that is closer than a brother. Think about that statement. A friend that's closer than that family bond. This was set into a culture of very tight family bonds, right? They lived together in tents. They worked together every day. They were each other's protectors in their numbers. They were tight. And he says, there's a friend that's closer than that. And it's this kind of real friendship that will keep us from ruin. That will give us the context in our life to to flourish and prosper. And the implication is simply this from the verse. Why did they tell us the verse? Why does he say this? Because he's saying these are the kind of friends you should have. This is the kind of friendship you should be striving towards. Close, intimate friendship. And of course, it kind of begs the question, that uncomfortable self-analysis for all of us, do I have such friends? Or am I this kind of friend? And before we get into kind of the practicality of how how do we do that, how do we grow such friendships, I want to say that I think we live in a time in history when it's very hard to have such friendships. Or to put it another way, it's very easy not to have them and to maybe not even know or not even care. So here's the, here's the kind of question I want us to think about for just a minute, and that is, why is that? Why is it that we live in a culture where it's very easy to have very shallow friendships, friendships that really can lead to ruin? and not deep, close friendships. What are some of the contributing factors to the lack of close friendships today? I would call these uh, close friend inhibitors. I remember when we, at at, at, uh, the men's retreat, we broke into little groups and we all discussed this and came up with different answers. And here's some of the stuff that kind of came up. The first one was... uh, Mobility. You know, people used to live in the same town all their lives and work, you know, probably the same job for 40 years. 
So there was a consistency in relationships that often allowed for deep friendships to be fostered. And people pointed out that we move a lot more for jobs and military and school and whatever. And city life itself, you know, like moving from city to city, it's, it's a, although it has proximity, it's, it's kind of proximity without community, right? Kind of live in little rooms with bars on the windows. Somebody said, well, what about Western materialism and, and careerism? The belief that, that more stuff will make you happier. So that stuff is often valued over relationships. We see that. That section I actually read, had read out of, out of Mark. You know what that comes about, about uh, friendships? They said, Lord, we've given up everything. And he says, you know, no one who's given up all, all these relationships will not get it back a hundredfold in this lifetime and more. You know what that comes at the end of? The rich young ruler couldn't give up the wealth. It's interesting, our, our architecture, I think, even kind of uh, gives us a way on this, right? Houses used to be built with front porches, big, beautiful front porches, at great cost, because people wanted to know their neighbors, be out in their neighborhoods. Now they're built with big garages that you can drive into and then enter the house without seeing anybody. Right? You can see it. What about pace of life? Some people said, it's just, life's just too fast, just too frenetic. We have fast food and instant coffee and two-minute noodles, and we're rushing from work to school to soccer practice to recitals to church activities. How do we have time? Time enough you know, you know, to just pay attention long enough to actually be friends, close friends at least. What about technology and screens? People think that there are social media and gaming communities that in them they're, they're actually connecting. But studies are saying, no, no, it's actually disconnection. It's actually creating distance and disunity so that people are losing the skills of real face-to-face -face interaction and communication. Social anxiety issues have skyrocketed because kids are literally terrified about how to interact with real people face to face. I read a few years ago this book by, uh, if I can say his name right, Aziz Ansoir or something like that. He's a comedian, very smart guy, and he, he teamed up to write this book called Modern Romance. It's about dating in the modern age, and he got some uh, professors from UCLA and different uh, sociologists, and they did this study and then wrote this book. And uh, he was comparing studies that were done in the 1930s and 40s about dating to today. And at one point, he actually brought in a group of elderly folks from that era who had dated and married during that era. And he had them sitting in a circle over here, and he brought in some modern young, you know, young people over here. And he said before the, they wanted to get in there and question them about things, he said before it even started, he looked out and he looked at the, the older folks, and they were all chatting, talking to each other, talking about what's going on in their life. They were laughing, and he looked at the young folks, and they all were just looking at their phones. And for your average teenager, and anyone, I think, I think there are three ways that screen time is inhibiting close relationships. Three ways. I wish all the teenagers were here. They're on retreat. We'll have to force them to listen to this or something. Um, 
<laughs> if I make a video out of it, maybe they'll watch it. Um, the first one is distraction. I mean, just the constant stimulation of little games and short clips and reels allow us to ignore our relational need, our, our loneliness, our inability, you know, our, it, it, they kind of allow us to ignore the, uh, even contemplating it. That space is just filled up with all these little things. It just distracts us from that need. The second thing about screen time is, I think, the illusion of it. Having whatever number, 354 friends on Facebook and 522 Instagram followers, I don't know if that's low or high, I have no idea. It's just a giant relational illusion, isn't it? Those little hearts and hugs and likes from people that you hardly know, they aren't real. They're like little dopamine hits, right? It's like, ooh, heart. That make us feel good so we don't feel the real thing. It's kind of like, you know, we're starving to death, but we take drugs to feel better. It's when you're actually dying. They make us think we're relationally okay when we're not. And you know that, uh, I got that gaming community that maybe you're part of? That, uh, I don't know, maybe it knows you as the warlock enchanter dragon slayer. I don't know how they know you. It's not a community of real friends. Any friendship that you can press pause on and log out of while you go get a burrito is not real. I say this to my sons all the time. They don't really know you. They aren't with you in your life. I tell my sons it's the smell test. If they can't smell you, it's not real. <laughs> but it can feel that way. And then what happens? What happens if those relationships feel so real? Well, they take up the space for the real relationships you need in your life. Four hours of gaming a day dominates maybe your relational real estate. So you have no room for the real thing. And the truth is, it's easy to kind of prefer these web relationships because they don't demand anything from us, really. My son, Zach, some of you know him, love him, lives in D.C. with his wife and kid. And, uh, and he would make no bones about it. He's a real gaming guy, spends some, quite a few hours gaming each day. We went to visit them in D.C., and we stayed in their apartment for a week. And I remember my wife and I walking out of their apartment and just about three doors down, somebody opened their door and they came out of the apartment, this woman and her husband, they said, oh, do you live there? And we said, oh, no, we don't, we don't live. My, my son and his wife live here. Oh, oh, okay. The next day we walked out and somebody came out another door and said, hey, do you guys, are you guys live there? Is that your dog? We were walking their dog. I said, no, this is my son and his wife's dog. They, they live here. They lived here for about five years. And I said to my son, Zach, do you not know your neighbors? And he was like, well, you know, I don't really, I don't have time for that. I don't, he didn't want those relationships. He's got his connections through his gaming world. See, real people, they want to borrow things. They ask for advice after a fight with their spouse. 
They might want you to help them move apartments. They bring real relational work and messiness to your life. It's not yours. So, I think we aren't developing any real relationships because we're not giving the time and space and effort that they need. And here's the thing. With all of this, I think we're in danger of raising a generation or generations that don't know how to relate an intimate, close relationship because they've never experienced one. They can't compare it to what they've lost because they've never had it. They've lived at this surface level. They feel this void, this need, but they have no idea how to get there. And there's one more inhibitor that I have to mention. It's an important one. Von Roberts spends a little time on this in his book, it's, a pretty, it's pretty significant, and, and it's, uh, it's what he calls, see here, the idolatry of eros. Jay touched on this a little bit last week. It's our culture's tendency to idolize romantic love as the ultimate place of relational fulfillment. If we can, if we can get that special one, that girlfriend, that lover, hopefully that, that wife or husband, then we've arrived relationally and it's all going to be good. This is what Disney is pumping into our kids. This is what every Hallmark special is about. This is what we might even pick up from the church's upholding of, of marriage as the ultimate sacred bond. And it is, and it's beautiful. But it's not because it's erotic or romantic. We have this hierarchy of relationship in our head where romantic relationship is first and friendship is a distant second. So young people, even Christians, become obsessed with eros. Thinking they have achieved all they need if they land that husband or that wife. So they don't, they don't pursue other deep friendships quite often. And single people think they are just doomed to a life of unfulfilling second-level relationships. But here's the truth. This is what the scripture says. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The greatest relational love is true friendship. Committed, sacrificial friendship. I'll tell you what, this, is, this better be what you have at the center of your marriage. Or eros is nothing. And this love, obviously, you can have outside of marriage or a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. Maybe even in a deeper way than many have it in their marriages and in those relationships. Friendship, real friendship. David and Jonathan are the incredible example of this in the Bible. And as, when Jonathan passes away, as, as David laments him, the end of that lament is he said, I had deeper love, he had a deeper love for me than any of a woman. It's the love that Jesus has for us. Friend 
of sinner. And in him, it's what we can and should pursue with one another. Close friendship. Okay, so uh, now we get to the how do we do it? How do we pursue and build close friendships? What do we do? I have uh, three little tips in relationship to the inhibitors. If this was a regular sermon, I guess these would be the three points. First one is make room. As we saw, the problem of many, for many of us when it comes to close friendships is that we've left no room for them in our lives. We've left no time, no space, no energy for them, and we need to change that. If you believe that real friendship in Christ, real friendships in Christ are crucial to doing well as a Christian, are crucial for walking in your faith, for God working out his sanctification in our lives in that friendship community, for God doing his work in this world, then we need to reprioritize and make room. We need to pull back from the mile-wide, shallow ocean of relationships that we prefer because it's only so deep and you can't drown, right? It feels so safe, but there's no depth. You think of Jesus. He focused on 12, didn't he? And then amongst that 12, there was his core three, Peter, James, and John. And John in particular is described as the disciple whom Jesus loved, that closest friend. Paul did the same with Luke, his dear friend, and Timothy, his dear son, he calls them. This wasn't about being cliquish, but being realistic to their relational capacity and and the time they have, making room, focusing in. And to make room, we may have to do some practical things like purge socially. We may need to get off social media platforms with our 5,000 followers that absorb all relational attention attention at a shallow level. I remember when I did that in my life. I, was, I can remember when Facebook was like getting going and I didn't know what I was doing. You just go on there and you're like, okay, and then people start friending you. And like, hi, and there's that person from high school. And, all the, and it just, pretty soon it was just filled up right, with all these people. And one day I said to my daughter, hey, how do you, can I, I, don't, I can't keep up, this is crazy. So I said, I just want people on here that I, that I don't interact with face-to-face. Maybe some of my friends from Australia and different places so I can keep track of them. And she cleaned it up and narrowed that. She purged that down. Maybe you need to cut out a lot of your gaming time or for us older folks just TV time. This is how my son comes back at me when I get on him about you know screen time and gaming time. He's like, well you watch TV. Just like, yeah that's true. That's my generation. That's how we kill time. Maybe that needs to be cut, cut in half. It also may mean um, discerningly pruning our actual real life relationships, especially the unhealthy ones that feed our our vices instead of lifting us up, kind of real-life unfriending. That was was me my freshman year of high school. I became a Christian the summer after eighth grade. A friend of mine led me to the Lord, and junior high was all about 
friending, right? It was all about popularity, wanting to have as many friends and be as cool as possible. And I remember I went into high school and that first party, Tara Moritz was having a party and everybody was going to be there. And I got the invite and I thought, not going to go. I didn't go to that party and no longer was I invited to those parties anymore. And that was so good. (laughs) Purging out of a whole place of friendships that I didn't need. One book I was reading talked about three levels. There's carnal friendships, worldly friendships, spiritual friendships. Carnal friendships are just friendships that are, you know, give us some uh, kind of enjoyment together, whether that's good or bad. Could be like sexual thing or something like that. Then there's uh, worldly friendships where there's something we're doing together where it's beneficial for both of us. You know, maybe it's a partnership at work or something. Then there's spiritual friendships. He says you have to prioritize accordingly. Or certain friendships will just dominate. I want you to, I want all of us to think of two or three friends right now that you would focus in on. If you said, I have to focus in on a couple, who would they be? Why? And why why, why would they be the ones? What would you do? But we might not just need to uh, purge our wider social circles to make room for true, deep, real Christian friendships. We might also need to purge our family calendars. This is a hard one. We tend to idolize family in the evangelical circles. Everything's about the focus on the family, which actually isn't what the Bible says. It's all about focus on God, isn't it? So with that kind of family idolatry, the good godly husband, dad, he he never misses a family event, right? He never misses a game. Even when when the the tournaments are, you know, over in Seattle or whatever, going to be there for every one of those, not even if he doesn't make it to church. I think husbands and wives, one of the best things we could ever do for our family is to have that hard talk with your spouse about taking time out of your family life schedule to make time to build deep, close Christian friendships. And if you think, hey, you know, I get all my friendship needs met through my spouse. No, you don't. And you're going to suffocate them if you try. You need other relationships, and God has given that in his body in the church. You need those friendships. You need to take time for them. Look at your family calendar and think, how can I make room to develop gospel friendships at all levels, for, for, for dads and moms, for kids? Do you know what our King's Club and our youth groups are about? They're about helping these kids develop deep gospel friendships. That's why they're way at camp right now, deep Gospel friendships, facilitating lifelong Christian friendships that'll be there when they've left you or when you're gone. This is what our youth camp, this is what our family camp is about, by the way. If you ever go to family camp, all the families go together, and then the men are making friendships, and the women are making friendships, and the kids are. This is what Jesus was on about when he said, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children for my sake 
And for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But we don't just need to make room for close friendships. We need to do more than make room for them. We also need to make every effort to maintain them. Maintain them. I think that one of the main hindrances to good, close friendships is simply just negligence. We tend to have this false idea in our heads that good friendships just happen naturally because that's how they evolved in our childhood, right? We were in the same circumstances, we went to the same schools, maybe we played on the same teams, and so we bonded. And there's some truth in that. But that's not how you keep and grow close, enduring friendships. That's why some of those really close friends from childhood aren't there anymore. They just slid away. Paul Tripp, in his, uh, his book on marriage, gives this great illustration of what often happens in the friendship of marriages that have gone bad. You know, that couple comes in, they're ready for divorce. He asks them what happened. They say, we don't know. We don't know what happened. And he always gives this illustration. He says, it's a little like when you first got married and you bought that new little, cute little home and it was beautiful and, and then you got busy at life and you went to work every day and you came back and you went to work and you came back and one day you noticed that one of the shutters was a little bit crooked and you thought, I'll get to that, but you just got busy and you went to work and you came back and he said, 10 years later, you pull in your driveway and you think, what is that pile of garbage? The house is broken, the paint's peeling off, the porch is caving in. And you say to your wife, what happened? He says, what happened is nothing. That's what happened. You did nothing. You assumed on it for years. You neglected it. That's what happens in relationships. If you don't maintain them. If you don't pay attention. And here's a couple friendship at, at the retreat. We broke into groups and we discussed friendship maintenance chores. What would you do to maintain a friendship? One that you already think is good, but you want to maintain it. Here's a couple things. First of all, oh, I forgot this great proverb that I wanted to throw in there. Do not forsake your friend and the friend of your father. Don't neglect. Here's a couple of uh, maintenance chores. First of all, regular commitment. How many of your friendships have a scheduled regular meeting that you're committed to? I remember, you know, you meet with them regularly to maintain it. I remember my freshman year of college, I met the guy, Tim Mitchell, who became my roommate, became great friends. He went off to be missionary in in northern Mongolia. He's now in Uzbekistan. But uh, when I met him, he he was a missionary kid. He grew up in Japan. And I'm, you know, your typical kind of Midwestern guy. I went to school down in the South. I was meeting all these people, and I'm doing that thing where you meet guys, say, hey, how you doing? What do you like to do? Oh, you like fishing? We'll have to go fishing sometime. That'd be great. On to the next person. Hey, how's it going? We like to play soccer. Well, I play soccer. We'll have to do that sometime. And I come up to him. What do you want? He goes, well, you know, I really want to get into to, to fitness, maybe to working out or something. I say, hey, I will have to work out sometime. And I went to shake his hand, and I shook his hand and started to walk away, and he still had my hand. And I look back at him, and he goes, when? 
I go, what? oh, work out? Oh, yeah, we'll do it sometime. And I started, he goes, no, when? And I was like, oh, this guy wants a commitment. <laughs> he thought a little differently about relationships, and he wanted to know when. And we set a date, to, and we became good friends. Good friends to this day, but he expected a regular commitment. And he was right. And all my friendships have been that way since that. Vaughn Roberts, who wrote this book, True Friendship, talks about, he's a single man, single minister, actually, and he said that there's two families in his church. One invited him for Monday night dinners like 20 years ago. Another one invited him for Wednesday lunches. And ever since then, he's been doing Monday night dinners and Wednesday lunches with those families and developed the closest friendship he's ever had. It's a simple equation. Quality time comes from quantity time. You can't say, oh, we're going to get together now and then, and it'll be quality. Mm -mm. Regular, committed time. This is what we're trying to foster through, in our church family, through small groups and discipleship groups and men's meetups and women's Bible studies and oh, trying to create time to meet and make it a priority. Secondly, I would say when you do meet, have a humble, accepting spirit. Nothing shuts down true friendship like pride and judgmentalism, self-righteousness. My dad in his chapter on friendship in his book says, an open accepting soul is like a warm inviting home, a place where friendship grows in this dark and often cold world. And of course, this is gonna mean forgiveness and grace when that friend lets you down or you let them down. Third, and I like this one, encouragement through enjoyment together. You need to do things with your friends that you enjoy together. I don't care if that's hiking or fishing or having donuts. I like that. It's a, it's a good enjoyment. I have one friend that we do some vacationing together with our families. It's a great time to build relationship. Fourth prayer. You want to grow close in your friendships, pray. First of all, pray asking God for close friends if you don't have them. Pray together. This is how you find out what's going on in their life. Pray for your friends when you're not with them. Do you pray for your friends? Do you have them on your list and you pray for them regularly, intentionally, fervently? It's one of the few things you can do for your friends when you're not together, it's completely selfless, isn't it? Think of how Jesus prayed. Okay, so we need to make room for close friendships. We need to maintain our friendships with intentional effort. And lastly, but not least, we need to be on mission together in and through our friendships. C.S. Lewis points out that most, uh, most eros relationships are generally portrayed in symbol by two faces, you know, facing each other, face to face. Goes, but friendships are always portrayed as side by side, facing life together on mission. My dad illustrates this in his book, Using David and Jonathan, and it's the best illustration and I hadn't thought about it this hard, but he talked about how Jonathan 
You know, we think of David as the one who stood up against the Philistines and when nobody else in Israel would. But Jonathan before him was the lone guy. You know he was the one guy in Israel with a sword besides his father? Because the Philistines were so oppressive on them that they wouldn't allow any blacksmiths. They didn't allow it kind of to exist so that they wouldn't have swords. But he had one. And he was so upset of how the Philistines mocked their God. And he believed that if they stood up that God would be with them. And he once took his sword and took his arm, <laughs> arms bearer with him, the poor guy. He said, come on, come with me. We're going to attack this Philistine garrison. Just him and his arm bearer. And they wiped it out. Took down 20 guys. But Jonathan seemed very alone until this shepherd boy showed up. Using the very same language as Jonathan. And stood up against that Philistine. And I don't know if you know this, but at the end of that event... When Saul is talking to David as he brings Goliath's head to him, it says this, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. They were knit together as they served together in battle for the Lord. And I think, you know, I know as... As, as males, we naturally kind of get this idea. This is why we love sports, right? We're on the battlefield together, bonded in battle. This is why what most gaming communities are about, right? It's a battlefield. They're out there fighting together. But of course, they're all shallow imitations of what we really desire and need. And they're always fleeting you know, even in the sporting arena. For me, in high school, soccer was my everything. We played with this team, same team. You know, in senior year, we were, made it to the sectional championship, and I could go on with stories. Closest friends. Where are they today? It was fleeting. I don't know where hardly any of them are. But I do have some friends from high school that are still there. They're still in my life. And they were my Christian friends. In fact, we would meet on Monday nights and pray together for our other friends and for our school. And you know those guys still meet? I can go back to Chicago and go to that Monday night prayer meeting with those guys. And my best friend in that group was Kent Graham. He was the guy who led me to Lord the year after eighth grade, the summer after eighth grade. And he was this guy that was, couldn't have been more different from me. I played soccer, I was a little guy. He played football, baseball, and basketball, and he was a very big guy. Recruited by all the colleges, number one recruit in the nation his senior year, played 11 years in the NFL. And nobody could understand in high school why we were friends. What is that big, why is he hanging out with that little guy? But it's because we were on mission together for the gospel. He loved the Lord, he was on gospel mission. We were in a battle much bigger than a Friday night football game or a soccer game. And it's continued through our whole life. I just called him this week. We're on gospel mission together. This is what all my close friendships that endured in my life have been around. Whether it's Kent Graham or my friend Mitch who's in Uzbekistan. My friend Paul Reese, the first pastor of this church. Justin Moffat, who some of you know from Australia. And really all of you. 
Philippians 1.27 says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's friendship. As Christians, there should be unique depth to our relationships that the world doesn't understand. And yes, it will be closer with some, and that's good. It's normal. But what's really going to unite us at whatever level, always, is our common gospel mission to live worthy of Christ in this dark world and bring his light to this world. It was so cool when I headed down to seminary when I was a young man. And as soon as I got there, other side of the world, with these strange Anglican Australians, I walked into that church and I knew I was bonded with them. In mission, in the gospel. And it was the same thing at seminary. Brothers in arms, do you have this in your close friendships? Are you battling together? And if not, if you don't have that, why not? Believers? And if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, man, I wish I had friends like this. Nobody's reaching out to me like this. Don't bemoan that. Be friend. You reach out in humble acceptance. You commit your time and energy. You make room in your life instead of filling it with trivial things. You begin to pray for such friendships and be such a friend. And you depend on the Lord. Call on him in prayer, asking the true friend of sinners to help you be a friend, a real true friend. And I have to say, be patient. One of the books had this little quote from Aristotle that I thought was great. It says, the desire for friendship comes quickly. Friendship does not. There's no shortcut to intimate, close friendships. You have to commit to the process for the long haul. But the result of what God will do in your life and through that friendship in this world is huge in his son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are our true friend. You are the one that gives sacrificially. You are the one that moves towards. You are the one that cares. You are the one that gives your life. That we may know you and you've brought us into your family and help us to live in that reality. To not get up, caught up in the shallowness of our world, but pursue the depth of our friendship in you with one another. For your kingdom's sake, amen.